The reading is taken from Genesis chapter 32. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maidservants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord, that I may find favour in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. In fear and great distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him, and be sure to say, Your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. 
After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. This is the word of the Lord. Do you notice how I get all the difficult passages? Let's pray to God for help. Dear Lord, thank you that you've given us your word, that you haven't left us alone to try and work out things for our own, but you've revealed to us your nature and your plans for us. Please help us now as we consider your word this morning. Please speak to each one of us individually that we might be changed. Amen. Literature and cinema are full of twins, from classics such as Romulus and Remus, through Shakespeare's comedy of errors, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, to Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia, even Austin Powers and Dr. Evil. I didn't know that, I had to look it up. Reading through the Genesis account of the life of the twin Jacob, this is certainly the stuff of the movies, we are told of prophecy, sibling rivalry, deception. Death threats, high-speed chases, conquering love, idyllic pastoral scenes, supernatural encounters, touching family reconciliation, and much more. If you haven't read about Jacob's life recently, can I encourage you to open the Bible at Genesis 25 and read of his exploits. Jacob means supplanter or deceiver, and he certainly lives up to his name in his dealings with his brother and his father, And when he meets up with his uncle Laban, who is of the same devious type, the sparks really fly as they engage in a battle of wits. Now, doesn't that sound like the blurb to a film? The story of Jacob starts with a comic birth scene. Now, this could be quite a challenge for a film director. First twin pops out, bright red and covered in hair. Hence, they give him the slightly unusual name, Hairy. Esau in Hebrew. And as the last of baby Harry is expelled, those present realize that the second twin, who should be patiently waiting his turn, 
has actually a firm grasp of Esau's ankle, as if not to let him get away with being the firstborn. So twin number two is therefore appropriately named heel grasper, Jacob in Hebrew, which is an expression which is used to mean deceiver. So like chalk and cheese, the charmingly named duo, Harry and Heel Grasper, grew up with very different interests and personalities, their sibling rivalry leading to a falling out of epic proportions. More on that later. Whilst the gripping account of Jacob's life is full of humor, the story is also comic in a technical sense. I learned recently Um, that there is such a thing as a comic plot, which is a U-shaped plot. In a comic plot, events descend into potential tragedy, but rise to a happy ending as obstacles are gradually overcome. And that is the shape of Joseph's life, uh, Jacob's life, Joseph next week. Jacob, this is his life as well, incidentally. Jacob's life starts with high hopes. In fulfillment of God's promise of offspring made to Abraham and Isaac, Jacob and Esau are born. God tells Jacob's mother that Jacob will be the stronger of the two and he will be served by his older brother. And by deceptive means, Jacob gains the birthright due to Esau, meaning that he will inherit the larger share of his father's wealth. He also gains the much-coveted paternal blessing that will result in great material prosperity and even dominion over his brother. But this contrived victory turns sour in Jacob's mouth when Esau realizes what's happened, realizes that he has been diddled, and he threatens to kill Jacob. Jacob thus flees for his life and stays with his uncle Laban, spending the next 20 years effectively in exile. So the first phase of the comic plot of Jacob's life, that is the first phase But, you know, the first phase mirrors the biblical story of humanity. Humans created in the image of God and knowing God's protection and blessing throw it away in an act of grasping for what is not rightfully theirs to have. The primeval couple soon find themselves in a grave predicament and are exiled from Eden. The first phase in the comic plot of Jacob's life also mirrors the story of God's people, those who will be descended from him. Set apart from the nations around them, they're brought into a land of their own to enjoy God's protection and blessing. The people of God, nevertheless, throw it away. When they reject, the, when they reject Yahweh and reach out to worship other gods instead. In judgment, the land vomits them out and they find themselves in exile and far from God. The first phase of the comic plot is also the reality for every human that has ever lived, you and me included, Each of us is made in the image of God. But it's not long after we're born that it's clear that we are headed in a course of self-destruction, driven by our selfish, grasping natures. You don't need to teach a child to sin. If you've ever watched infants playing together, it's obvious that selfishness is ingrained. It's in our genes. Left to our own devices, we're estranged from one another and estranged from God. And we face the consequences of our rebellion against him. High hopes that go pear-shaped is a recurring theme. But that is not the end of the story. As Jacob is headed into exile, he has at Bethel an an encounter with the gracious God who promises to bless him. 
The covenant promise made to Abraham and Isaac is now being made to him. God promises to protect Jacob and bring him back to the land from where he's fleeing. Jacob is unworthy, but the gracious God unconditionally promises to bless him. God's promise to Jacob of blessing and provision mirrors that made to Adam and Eve. Though unworthy, they are assured that in time their adversary, Satan, will be crushed. Though expelled from Eden, God continues to provide for them, betokened by the provision of um, animal skins. God's people, the Israelites, though constantly failing God, similarly knew his gracious provision and protection, exemplified by the manna in the desert. All humans, irrespective of their unworthiness, know God's provision. As Jesus reminds us, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jacob, the fugitive, reaches Haran and starts to work for his uncle Laban. Rough justice is done when the deceiver is deceived himself by his wily uncle. Jacob falls for the classic substitute bride gag, but he manages to get one up in the wily old fox with a sly trick to expand his flock. After 20 years, the relations between those inveterate swindlers turns to an all-time low, and Jacob once again decides to scarper, this time with a motley collection of wives, concubines, assorted children and livestock, only to be overtaken by his bamboozled relative 10 days later. And for once, Jacob's own cunning is not enough to save him. Jacob is mercifully spared from Laban's vengeance, but only because of an act of divine intervention. But it seems that Jacob has merely made it out of the frying pan and into the fire. Having pledged to Laban not to turn back, he faces the prospect of the approach of his estranged brother, last heard muttering that he was going to kill him, approaching with an army of 400 men. So Jacob reaches the nadir, the very depths of phase two in his U-shaped life. This is where we are in our reading. Jacob is described in verse seven as being in great fear and distress, and that's about as strong as it gets in the Bible. His desperation is betrayed by his irrational decision to bring all his family across a fast-flowing tributary of the Jordan in the middle of the night. A dangerous decision. The Jabbok marked the boundary to the land that God had promised to Abraham's descendants. And it is, it's at this physical boundary, this physical threshold, that a turning point is reached in Jacob's U-shaped comic life. Jacob realizes that he's in dire straits. True to form, he continues to scheme, hence the elaborate attempt to bribe his brother with those 550 animals, quite some bribe. But such is Jacob's desperation that he turns to God in prayer. And Jacob's prayer is recorded for us from verse 9. You might care to look at that, verse 9 onwards. Now, in many ways, Jacob's prayer is a model prayer. Jacob starts with God, the God of his father Abraham, the God of his father Isaac, and a rehearsal of God's promises to make him prosper. Our prayer should always be based on God's character and what God has promised. God wants us to appeal to him on the basis of what he has said he will do. As our Savior has taught us, so we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Jacob acknowledges God's gracious provision. Give us today our daily bread. Jacob then asks God to deliver him from a presumed hostile power, deliver us from evil. But in comparing Jacob's to the Lord's prayer, that comparison, there is a significant missing element. I wonder if you spotted it. The missing element is, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation. Jacob recognizes God for who he is and he wants to know his blessing, but he hasn't submitted to God. Jacob hasn't sought God's forgiveness and he hasn't sought his power to lead a new life. Jacob has failed to repent. This is the reason why I think Jacob has to undergo the famous wrestling scene that follows, because Jacob has failed to repent. Now, there are a number of weird stories in the Bible, but this must rank as one of the weirdest. Did it really happen? Jacob was clearly under some significant emotional stress, and he had been on the road for some time with a large company. Perhaps he was suffering some form of nervous breakdown, and this was a hallucination of sorts. Or was it a dream or a vision from God? Well, the plain reading is that this incident actually happened in a physical way. Jacob did, after all, emerge from it with a physical limp. And it would also not be unique in the Bible for God or the angel of the Lord, terms often used interchangeably, to have appeared in physical form. There are numerous examples of that. Jacob is assaulted by a mysterious male figure, later identified to be God, and he has to fight for his life. Well, in this encounter, a paradox of our faith is displayed. On the one hand, God allows or even puts his people into difficult or impossible situations, but it is the same God who delivers us from them. Running through the Psalms of Lament is the conviction that the nation's trials are heaven-sent. Yet it is only from heaven that they can look for deliverance. As Calvin put it, God assails us with one hand and defends with the other. Inasmuch as he supplies us with more strength to resist than he employs in opposing us, we may truly and properly say that he fights against us with his left hand and fights for us with his right hand. For while he lightly opposes us, he supplies invincible strength, whereby we overcome. At one and the same time, God is putting Jacob into a predicament and rescuing him from it. Jacob deserves opposition from God. As Jacob later says, seeing the face of God, he would have expected to die. God, however, was determined to bless him. Clearly, God could have overcome Jacob in an instant. But he allows Jacob to use all his strength. God then, however, gains the advantage by a supernatural touch that results in a dislocated hip. Jacob has already acknowledged in his prayer that it is God who gives him all that he has. But it's only during this struggle that Jacob really owns that for himself. He really owns that fact. The God who gives is also the God who takes away And Jacob is left with no option but to throw himself on God's mercy. His carnal strength and self-confidence are now shriveled up. He cannot gain a blessing by force or by guile. 
He can only gain a blessing by asking. Having spent his life in pride, dragging out God's blessing, he is now forced merely to accept it being given to him. The mysterious story of Jacob wrestling with God is just about the nearest that the Old Testament gets to a conversion story. An Old Testament conversion story. In this struggle, Jacob at last repents of his former life. Do you notice Jacob is asked what his name is? And Jacob, in divulging his name, effectively discloses his character. I am the deceiver. The deceiver confesses his guilt. He fills in the essential missing element of the earlier prayer, forgives our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. He now approaches God as a penitent sinner instead of a proud one. The heel catcher is caught. Jacob the heel catcher is caught. Jacob's conversion was a struggle. Conversion often is, as it requires us to give up something that's deeply part of us. We need to surrender to God. C.S. Lewis described himself as the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. For a ship to be turned requires a significant injection of energy to overcome the momentum of traveling in the opposite direction. So it is with Christian conversion, which is a decisive turning around. The New Testament word for repent is a military maneuver to stop marching in one direction and to go in the opposite one. We cannot be right with God simply by nodding to God's sovereignty and seeking his protection. That is what Jacob tried to do. We must express our faith by turning around, by repenting and walking in the opposite direction, leaving behind, with God's help, behaviors and attitudes that are opposed to God's ways. We need to leave those behind. We need, to show, we need God to show us what these are, what these attitudes and behaviors are, And he will show us. Jacob had to do this with his deceitfulness and scheming. The river scene is a type of rebirth for Jacob. According to Gerald Jansen, the combination of darkness, the water, wrestling at night, and a new name at daybreak implies that at Jabok, Jacob enters the womb a second time to undergo rebirth. The nighttime wrestling river scene is Jacob's second birth. The new creation emerging in the light of the new day is named Israel. Israel is his new name. Israel means God fights. As with renaming Saul, Paul, and christening Simon, Peter, God is signaling a new start with a new name. And this new name applies not just to Jacob, but it will also be applied to God's people. Jacob's new name will testify to the fact that God fought against this stubborn patriarch. It will also testify to the fact that God will fight for his people Israel. Israel the man and Israel the people will learn that ultimate victory will not come about by the usual ways by which nations grasp at power. Ultimate victory will only come through the power of divine blessing. Self-sufficiency is incompatible with the work of God. Faith alone overcomes the world. So the turning point in Jacob's life is reached. He turns from his self-reliance to humble dependence on God. Jacob leaves behind his grasping ways, and he allows God to do the fighting for him. The history of God's people follows the same trajectory. 
having suffered exile and separation from God's presence, God's people are brought near by Jesus' work on the cross and the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. On the cross, God fights for his people. God fights for his people against the powers of darkness and prevails. At Pentecost, the church is born and blessed with God's constant, empowering presence that is the Spirit of God. For each of us individually, we are saved from the crisis of alienation from God by God himself. But at the same time, we are only reborn, made into new creations when we confess our guilt, when we seek God's forgiveness and his power to change. The tragic plot line of our lives is rewritten and reversed when we repent and are born of the Spirit of God. As Jacob recognized, to encounter God is something that sinful humans cannot by rights survive. It is only when we humbly submit to God that our fortunes are reversed. It's when we submit our wills to God in repentance that instead of fighting against us, God fights for us. Jacob is forever changed by his experience of wrestling with God. Jacob emerges from the night with a limp, a physical sign to serve as a perpetual reminder of a new spiritual reality. He also emerges with the unmistakable beginnings of a new and more godly character. On his deathbed, Jacob speaks of the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm. The life of Jacob, the father of God's people, was turned around by God at Peniel. Jacob was reborn as Israel. We all need God to fight for us rather than against us. Jacob's story of reversed fortune and rescue can be ours. It can be ours if we, like Jacob, repent and allow God to change us. So, as our Savior has taught us, so we pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.